It's a pleasure, as always, to uh, stand in this pulpit and have the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. Many of you, I know, are regular readers of your Bibles, and many of you, I'm sure, have been through the Bible cover to cover more than once. Uh, If you haven't been, I certainly encourage you uh, to do that. It's important to get that big picture of what God is saying to us in His Word. And as we read through God's Word, you may not put it in exactly the words I'm going to use, but I think a question confronts an attentive reader, and it's this. How can a holy, holy, holy God live at peace with a sinful, sinful, sinful people? And if we never wrestle with that, I wonder if we can ever fully appreciate how wonderful it is that salvation is by grace alone. We'll confront that question tonight, and we'll confront God's solution to it. And I hope we will see something of the glory of His grace as we see a stubborn people restored by grace. I'd like to read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 15 through verse 22. This is God's inerrant word to us. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. Let us pray. Our Father, we now ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in understanding your blessed word. May we indeed see something of our own sinfulness and something of your wonderful grace in, in restoring the souls of sinners such as we are. Help me to speak your word clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stubbornness. 
It's such a common human characteristic that sometimes we chuckle at it. I know I do. My father is approaching 95. At times he will do something that is stubborn. And I've said to him, oh, dad, you're not stubborn at all. And he'll laugh and he'll say, oh, no, not me. I'm not stubborn. And at least he has the grace to see that he can be very stubborn. We won't discuss whether his son can also be stubborn or not. That would be too embarrassing to talk about. You can go from 95 down to age 2, and every parent knows that there becomes a time when their child learns that wonderful word, no. And that's kind of the beginning, you might say, of human stubbornness. But if we think more soberly about it, stubbornness really isn't funny at all. Stubbornness is deadly. Because what stubbornness is, is a defiant persistence in a wrong course. It's defiant persistence in a sinful course. And if we're guilty of that, we are in danger indeed. And Israel was guilty of that indeed. And especially when, when we are uh, defying the living God. We have inherited our stubbornness from the first Adam. And our stubbornness can only be cured by the second Adam. I'd like to open up our text under two major headings, a few subpoints under each. But first, I want to give you a mugshot of a stubborn people. And I use the word mugshot deliberately with all of its associations with criminals. Who sinners are in defiance against God, a mugshot of a stubborn people. And then the glory of God in restoring these people by grace. The mugshot of a stubborn people. And I want you to see three things here. I want you to notice Israel's idolatry. I want you to notice her folly. And I want you to notice her chastening. First, Israel's idolatry, which is, which is fairly plain in our text, but if we go back in our chapter to the very beginning of chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, here's a, an important background to what's going on here. The Lord says, Ah, stubborn children, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Israel, at this point, in protection from the rising Assyrian Empire, was seeking an alliance with Egypt. A political alliance, a military alliance, to save them from their enemies. Which God, through his prophets, had again and again forbidden them to do. Think more deeply of this, apart from political machinations and maneuvering, this meant that at heart, they didn't trust God. We believe, imagine this, the people of God saying, we believe 
that Egypt will do a better job of protecting and delivering us than our God will. That, my friends, is stubbornness and defiance. As I thought about applying this, I first thought of more spiritual applications and the kind of idols that we pursue in our lives, and all of those would be legitimate. But then I was thinking, it strikes me that I can almost make a literal application of this in these days. Not that we're seeking an alliance with Egypt, literally. But what I'm saying is, sometimes the Lord's people have such a zealousness about their politics that it almost seems as though they don't trust God for their lives. No, we need this candidate or this policy or this election result for things to turn out right. That's not idolatry. I don't know what is. If that's not trusting God, in fact, I think it isn't trusting God, it's trusting in the arm of flesh. Not that we shouldn't care about issues, not that we shouldn't be involved in politics, but I'm talking about a zealousness that puts us almost back with Israel, seeking its alliance with Egypt at the expense of trusting God. And you can plug other idols into that application as well. Second, I want you to see Israel's folly, which is really part of their idolatry, but I want to single this out. In verse 15, the Lord makes them a wonderfully gracious appeal to this stubborn people. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, says, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and in quietness and in trust you shall, be, you sh you shall have strength. It, it, it echoes very much what the Lord Jesus Christ will later say when he says, Come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Idolatry is always anxiety-driven. It's always fueled by worry and frenzy, and that's what Israel is doing in seeking out this alliance with Egypt. God said, your security comes from me, and what true test, what true faith is, is repentance and rest and quietness and trust. Talk about an offer you can't refuse. But oh, they do refuse. Notice what Israel says to this. Um, <clears throat> you were unwilling, and in verse 16, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. They will continue to be frantic and anxious and take matters into their own hands. And Israel says, no, we're not accepting this offer of your grace. Not unlike a two-year-old. If we look again backwards in uh, chapter 30, just another example of this is in verses 9 through 11. And this is Israel's attitude toward the prophets, toward the speakers of God's word. And we see this again and again in the Old Testament. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, 
who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What a horrible thing. That would be bad enough if pagans were saying that. We would cringe to hear pagans saying that. These are the visible people of God. These are covenant people. At least an outward covenant with God. We don't want to hear you anymore. We don't want to hear the word. We don't want to hear its demands. We don't want to hear its convictions or even its promises. We can do it better ourselves. We want to hear smooth things only. As you know, I was a pastor for many, many years. And always one of the most heartbreaking things to me was when, when, when someone in the church, whom I considered a brother, a sister, faithful in attendance and service, but, but they had decided, for example, just for example, to pursue an unbiblical divorce. It had just come to the point where that's what they were doing. They were going out the door. At that point, they didn't want to listen to me anymore. And it was heartbreaking. They didn't want to listen to the elders of the church. And ultimately, they did not want to listen to their God. They were saying exactly what Israel did. Speak no more of these things. We don't want to hear you. I've made up my mind. That's what I'm doing. Talk about a destructive, <clears throat> a destructive stubbornness and defiance. And then thirdly, I want you to just briefly consider that in response to this, God chastens his people. Verse 17, this is what you think you're going to flee away, is the sense of the passage. You think you're going to flee and be successful from the Assyrians? Verse 17, no, a thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. I think that image of the flagstaff and the signal is a reference to a remnant. Just going to be a few of you left. That's what's going to happen to you. And then another reference to the chastening is in verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. Waters of bread of adversity, waters of affliction, God's chastening. But, but the seed of hope here is that God is chastening his children. They're acting like his enemies, but they're still his children. Remember all the way back to verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He is a holy God, as we'll see in a minute. And he cannot turn a blind eye to their sins. As a parent, I could be patient with weakness in my children and unintentional sins and even repeated sins and all that kind of thing. But one thing I thought demanded discipline always, and my kids weren't really, didn't really give me that much trouble about this, but occasionally there would be defiance. There would be a clear rejection and turning away from what I was telling them. I always thought that demanded a response or I was being negligent. And certainly our God is responding to their defiance 
with discipline and with chastening. But he's chastening his children. And that means there's, there's a seed of hope. And we'll go on to that in just a moment. But what is your heart like tonight? What is the state of your heart? Is there some pathway in your life that you're defying God in? That you are resisting and rejecting His will? Oh, my friend, what a dangerous course you are on. Outwardly, you may praise Him, but inwardly, your heart far from Him. Oh, turn from that course and receive this wonderful offer of restoring and healing grace that he offers. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Well, the second major point I want to make then is having looked at this mugshot of God's stubborn people, I want you to see something of the glory of God in restoring his people by grace. Verse 18 is really a wonderfully rich doctrine of God, we might say. Um, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, I must admit, in my first few readings of this and wrestling with it and thinking about it for the sermon, it didn't fully make sense to me. I wasn't quite sure what was being said here. But I have found, and maybe you've found, it's precisely those kind of passages, when you wrestle with them and pray over them, that they yield wonderful treasure. For example, this therefore is not what you would expect. Right? These are defiant people, so what I would think that therefore would be, therefore, I'm going to judge you. Therefore, I'm going to cut you off. That's not what it is. It's a therefore leading to grace. Where does that come from? Second, I was puzzled by, what does it mean the Lord is waiting to be gracious? I understand we're to wait upon Him, We're the servants, we're the children, we wait upon him, we look to him, hopefully. What does that mean? That the Lord waits to be gracious. Well, having chewed this up and chewed it over and uh, interacted with a a number of commentaries, I I think what the Lord is saying here is this. You are persisting in your course of stubbornness. But nothing will turn me aside from being gracious to you. And therefore, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to watch. And then, you'll see my grace. Why does he wait? Why does he watch? Because he's a God of justice. He can't simply ignore their sin. He can't not take it into account. So you're persisting in your stubbornness. All right, I'll wait. But this waiting is full of expectations. It's a glad waiting. It's an eager waiting. It's like the father of the prodigal scanning the horizon looking for his son to come back. It's that kind of waiting. And grace will simply be 
manifested. I believe that's what the Lord means here. Out of his own gracious character comes the therefore. And in the second part of verse 18, therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. God will be glorified in his demonstration of mercy. And that means it has to be both just and merciful which is precisely the glory of the gospel. How can a holy God live at peace with sinful people when he, as Paul says in Romans 3, verse 26, when he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? God's justice is manifested and maintained and dealt with at the cross. When the Lord Jesus Christ bears the burden and curse of our stubbornness, and therefore he justifies. And he is glorified in doing it. He is glorified in the gospel by being gracious to sinners. Perhaps just in passing, I might ask you if, if, if there's a stubborn person in your life that's giving you trouble. Maybe it's a 95-year-old, or maybe it's a 2-year-old, or maybe it's a teenager, or maybe it's an unbelieving spouse. I don't know. It could be any number of people. You can't ignore their sin. I'm not suggesting that you should. You've got to call it out. You've got to call a spade a spade, as they say. But the answer to it is not to take a club and beat them like they were a mule. The answer to it is to wait like God does, with eager expectation to speak at the right time a word of grace, a word of gospel. That's how God works. That's what he's showing us. And I think it's instructive for us. Well, finally, I just want to point out this restoration. The word restoration is not in the text. Maybe you can think of a better word. But here we see a picture in verses 19 through 22, of what God wants his people to be. And in one sense, this won't be perfected until Jesus comes. But in another sense, I do believe that through faith, it is a reality that we can enjoy now. Three things to say. One, God's restored people will have a joyful, close dwelling with him. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem you shall weep no more. Part of that close dwelling with God is his ear is attentive to their voice. He answers their prayer as soon as they cry. What a wonderful picture of God's grace. His attentiveness to us. His his waiting, his eagerness, even to answer our prayers. There will be no more weeping, he says. There will be grace. Again, not fully until the end of time, yet even now. Until now, Jesus says, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, ask, he says, and you will receive a joyful dwelling with God. Another part of the restoration is, is, what shall I say, assured guidance from our great teacher. 20 and 21, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. Notice. One of the chastenings, one of the things God does at times is to hide himself. 
behind a frowning confidence, behind a frowning frowning countenance, I'm stumbling over that word, behind a frowning countenance, the hymn says, he hides a smiling face. The Lord does at times hide himself to set us seeking him more intently. But the teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left. I don't believe he's talking here about an audible voice. I don't think he's talking here about some kind of mystical guidance. I think he's saying God has changed our hearts, so we are walking in the right way, and he will be there to guide us and say, not that way, this way, not this way, that way. Stay on course. What a wonderful way of describing God's guidance. It's interesting that if you look at the New King James Version, for example, you don't see the word teacher with a capital T. You see the word teachers with a small t. Um, that's, that's actually accurate because in the Hebrew, the word is plural. And so one way of taking it is that God's people will again listen to the prophets. They'll listen to the ministers of the word, which they weren't doing before. But really, that is listening to God, is it not? Listening to the prophets, listening to a faithful minister preaching the Bible to you, that is listening to God. But I do think the ESV is right, though, in making it a capital T, because that plural, I think, is what what Hebrew scholars call a plural of majesty. It's really talking about God. And who is our teacher that we that the apostles saw with their eyes and heard with their ears, and we see and hear through them, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the, one, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the fulfillment of that. That seeing and hearing and walking and being guided by our Teacher, in paths of righteousness. And then verse 22. Then you will defile your carved idols. They will become iconoclasts. They will smash their idols to pieces. Will you notice, they haven't repented enough so that the Lord is gracious to them. It's God's grace that causes the repentance. I think it's very important to see that. It's God's work of grace that has moved them to repentance. Paul says the same in Romans. It is the mercy of God that leads you to repentance. So it is here. It's not our achievement. Nothing. We, oh, boy, I did a great job repenting. It is the gift of God. It is the work of God that leads us to smash our idols. Will we ever totally get rid of our idols, this side of glory? Unfortunately not. But nevertheless, we can have decisive victories over these idols and put our, take our idols out of their place and put God back in his place, which is central. He is to be worshipped and followed above all. My friends, I close by saying, please, let us hear and let us receive and rest upon this wonderful offer, this wonderful promise that our God makes to us. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. And in quietness 
and in trust shall be your strength. Pastor friend of mine says that is his life verse. That's kind of cool. That's a good way of thinking about life. May God grant us such returning and rest and thus salvation. May he grant us such quietness and trust and thus strength. Amen.